Hello, welcome back to The Passion Project. My name is Alex Adams, and today we'll be talking to Kamal about his passion for politics and discourse. He graduated from Queens in political science, I think 2020, is that it? Yep, 2020. And welcome to the show. How are you? I'm doing great, man. It's uh, it's great to finally be here. A long time, uh, long time listener, first time caller. It's, yeah. <laughs> uh, it's great to finally make it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, big fan of our uh, the adjacent uh, Geeking on Sportscast as... Uh, you know, that's been trending only in the upward direction. Um, obviously kind of kidding, but let's let's get into this. So um, just so the listeners know, Kamal is from Egypt, although he did live abroad for a lot of his childhood. Um, and so I just want to get into how did you start getting interested and caring about politics and were your parents kind of influential um, in how you saw politics from the very beginning? Yeah, so um, pretty much my family it was it was my uh my birthright to be politically involved my mm-hmm. uh, my grandfather was intensely politically involved in egypt my dad okay. so my my dad's dad um mm-hmm. and then my dad pa- got past that that torch and then <laughs> he passed that same torch to both my sister and i so my mom ended up being the odd man out in our family who is not intensely politically involved <laughs> <laughs> okay so yeah, no, it's uh, it started young. Like, uh, my sister is significantly older than me, so okay. I watched her begin her political involvement when I was still 10, 11, 12. Oh, um, how how much older is she? She's seven years older than me. Oh wow! So, okay. Yeah, so when I was 10, 11, 12, she was seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, mm-hmm. um, and that kind of jump started me from a young age as well, where I started to get significantly more politically involved by the time I was about fourteen, fifteen. Mm-hmm. Um. And of course, 2011 uh, was when the revolution happened. I was living in Ottawa. Um, Okay. And so I actually, we were actually watching it in my class. I was the only Egyptian in class. Uh And shout out to my teacher, Mr. O. He recognized that this is like a big monumentous moment. So for me, he basically like cut class and Mm -hmm. put, connected his laptop to the projector and just had like the CNN feed of, of the protests happening. And, and this, this is in Egypt. This isn't the adjacent other Arab spring parts. Yeah. This is, yeah, this is in Egypt when, when it finally Mm -hmm. hit Egypt and I was in Mm -hmm. Ottawa. So it was, it was just really like eye opening for me to finally see like what that my country was finally sick of it because mm-hmm. that was always the discussion but mm-hmm. you know we had had our previous leader Hosni Mubarak for upwards of 30 years mm-hmm. and so this sense of like complacency had kind of kicked in where it was like well it's all we've known and life is all right so let's just leave it but so so was just to kind of clarify a little bit, was your family like your your brother yeah your brother your sister <laughs> and your father were they kind of anti-Mubarak or was it more just they like what was their kind of yeah they were they, my family has always been our our focus has always been not ideological like we aren't mm-hmm. pushing for one specific party or one specific movement of any kind it's more our focus has always been on human rights and mm-hmm. a distinction within that so my sister is gender rights so she's mm-hmm. always her work has always been focused on making sure that women in underprivileged communities get the same access that everybody mm-hmm. else does um <laughs> For me, it's always been more poverty oriented in a more broad sense. So mm-hmm. making sure that the rights of those who have been disadvantaged structurally can get a better shake of it. Um, and that was more of what my grandfather did. Um, mm-hmm. And so with that in mind, that was always so we were we were we were our family was neutral, leaning anti-Mubarak purely mm-hmm. because his human rights record was mm-hmm. abysmal. 
mm-hmm. and the state of the country only continued to decline under his rules. So there's mm-hmm. no way that you can't be anti Mubarak if you're anti what he's been doing. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> did did then, you? Sorry, I was. Go ahead and go. I was just gonna say when when it kind of you mentioned in class and you you saw that moment. Did that feel like almost a weight off your shoulders? Did it feel like? was it kind of a really good emotion that you felt or was it more kind of mixed reaction to kind of, I mean, obviously it took a while, but, uh, yeah, I, I would say it definitely was a combination of emotions. I was still very young. Like I was Mm -hmm. in seventh grade when that happened. Um, so it was, it was like the awe of it finally happening. Mm -hmm. Uh, the mixture of like excitement that, wow, there's finally a big change happening in my country, you know, like, Mm-hmm. At, at that point, Hosni Bodak's rule, I think, had been getting close to 33 or 34 years. So you could think of you know, someone born in, in the 80s by that point will have grown their whole life mm-hmm. only knowing one leader. Yeah. Um, but then also the mixture of fear. You know, our country is not as free as most others. So I knew that I could tell that something bad was eventually going to happen. This wasn't going to end so smoothly. Mm-hmm. Um. But it was, it was just, it was, I would say, like an awakening of some kind, which mm-hmm. an awakening is never really the smoothest of processes, you know? Mm-hmm. And then the anxiety that came with the fact that I wasn't there, but my, mm-hmm. the whole of my extended family was. So concern over them and their safety. Um, and yeah, I mean, in, in the years that followed, I worked to educate myself, given that I understood that now the Egypt, Egypt had been, you know, brought down to zero and it, the process to rebuild was meant to happen so i had always wanted to be part of that rebuilding effort mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then we had our first democratic election and that was where the importance of discourse really okay. clicked for me mm-hmm. so we had our first democratic election yeah. and we as a, as an egyptian populist ended up screwed with mm-hmm. our final two candidates yeah because the two candidates remaining was a man from Hosni Mubarak's former regime mm-hmm. and the Muslim Brotherhood. Yeah. So the very definition of rock in a hard place. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And we voted Muslim Brotherhood because you're not going to, you didn't just have a whole revolution yeah. to vote in the same damn yeah, regime. Yeah, yeah. So. And, and how would you say that the discourse was kind of lost or kind of didn't go the right way in, in this case? Because. We, like the Egyptian people, we lost sight of the fact that, look, we democratically elected these people and we made a bad choice, mm-hmm. but we have to stick it out mm-hmm. because if we don't stick it out, we're screwed for another 90 years mm-hmm. because then there's no integrity in our democratic process anymore. Mm-hmm. Like we got one shot at this. We did it properly. Like of all, all the international organizations that monitored yeah. and audited Egypt's election said yeah. this was a clean election, fair and square. But the Muslim Brotherhood just won the election by using intelligent campaigning uh, practices. They went to the most rural parts of Egypt and handed out care packages, rice, flour, sugar, basic ingredients that people need to survive. They just did that all over the rural parts of Egypt and won there. Mm-hmm. Um, but then people, the Muslim Brotherhood started to implement some pretty aggressive policies that were you know, Egypt has existed in the Hosni Mubarak and throughout most of our militaristic regimes as a relatively secular state. Mm-hmm. Um, we're an Arab republic, not an Islamic republic. Yeah. And so, but once the Muslim Brotherhood came in, the talk and the and and the policies that seemed to be 
you know, priority to them were all like mandatory hit job nonsense. Of course, that was just rumors. But once you reach the point where that's the, the, what uh, people people think that these are policies and they're willing to actually believe that you're going to implement a mandatory hit job policy. Mm-hmm. It's, it's the conversation's dead at that point. You know, you, you're, how are you going to unru- put, put all the toothpaste back in the tube to get back to a <laughs> sensible point of conversation? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and while I don't disagree that, like, we needed to get the Muslim Brotherhood out, we needed to better placate them until you, they would just be voted out. Do you, do you want to explain a little bit about how they, like, the Muslim bro- Brotherhood got kicked out just for listeners? And, and maybe mm-hmm. it just tell me how you felt when that happened so the muslim so people started to protest the muslim brotherhood rightfully so and it was all peaceful and then within the chaos and the lack of of desire for the muslim brotherhood within the general populace Mm -hmm. the ever opportunistic military sees the opportunity Mm -hmm. and in, and so you had protests against the Muslim Brotherhood, and then you had counter protests against the Muslim brother uh, against the military the pro- yeah, against the protesters, basically. Yeah. Okay. Saying, no, we support the Muslim Brotherhood. We want them to stay. No, we don't want the Muslim Brotherhood. Get them out of here. So th- that was all. Those were the two parties involved, and then the military got involved. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and the military basically took the public support or the the public distaste for the mm-hmm. Muslim Brotherhood as tacit approval for a coup yeah so the military just steamrolled the muslim brotherhood jailed the entirety of their like leadership and the mm-hmm. and and everything and and then you had uh Raba, which was the Raba massacre was where the military went in to clear out encampments of pro-muslim brotherhood protesters mm-hmm. and but there were it was a mixture at Rabah, and anywhere between 900 to 1100 people were killed mm-hmm. uh, by by the government by, by the now government see mm-hmm. the general general Sisi who is now our leader is the one who ordered that operation to clear out those encampments mm-hmm. um, so seeing seeing all that happen made me realize the importance of the ability for people on op- opposing sides to talk before it gets to this point mm-hmm. because um- yeah, I was just going to say, just thinking about everything you said, and, and, and obviously, I know it's important about political discourse. Would you say that when both sides, the Muslim Brotherhood and the um, protests like against them, and then the pro uh, Muslim Muslim Brotherhood uh, protests, would you did you feel as though at the time that was like a good kind of way of political discourse and protest? Or did you feel it was skewed and and um. It was a start, you know, you, if, mm-hmm. if, if it remains just two groups of people protesting each other, that can eventually lead to conversations around a table. Mm-hmm. You know, eventually you, you realize that you're, you've protested it all. You know, there's not much else for you to hold a sign in front of. So to progress, you're going to need to finally sit down across from each other at a table and get a pen and paper and write down some compromises. Mm-hmm. Um, whatever compromises you two parties can come to. Um, but with, with that, you have the danger of opportunistic people trying to hop on either side of the protests and push a radical agenda, not a moderate one. Mm-hmm. Um, because ultimately, I've, 
well, I never support the Muslim Brotherhood. I never have, and I probably never will. Mm-hmm. But we voted them in. We mm-hmm. had to see them through to ensure that our democratic process could hold on for the future. And so the protests kind of frustrated me in that sense. I said, you know what? It, it's like, if the only tool that you have is a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. <laughs> yep, yep. Good analogy. Um, I just wanted to, to go off that a little bit. So, like, would you, do you feel as though they're, like, what would your solution been if, if, you, if you think there was, like, a clear kind of one? Or, or do you feel it was, it's kind of more, I mean, more nuanced than that? It's, I think it's more nuanced. I, the, the difficulty with something like protests in Egypt is it's so many people. You know, mm-hmm. it's there's so many different perspectives and slightly different interpretations of the core message that it 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 requires a very gentle hand and a very progressive pro- like process. Like it's not mm-hmm. all going to happen all at once. You know, this needed to be a series of meetings over the course of eight months in a very ideal hypothetical world here. Mm-hmm. Um this would have been a long, long process, especially given that Egypt's problems are deep, deeply rooted. You know, mm-hmm. our, our education, our economy, our tourism, our housing infrastructure, mm-hmm. everything is needs to be rebuilt almost from the ground up. Yeah. So coming to compromises on things that are 10, 15, 20 year plans are, is, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, a very daunting task. So mm-hmm. I think the way it ended up shaking out is, clearly the way it had to go i don't think okay in in the sense of i could i can i could not envision given the feelings at the time how it could have gone any other way okay um i'm very very likely wrong on that though i will admit um (laughs) purely because i was i'm my my observation of the situation is limited to the fact that my i was still only about 15 16 Mm -hmm. so i was there observing in person at times but ultimately your your interpretation of a situation obviously changes radically as you grow up yeah um Um, i mean if like if if you want to keep going on on how you feel about it that's good too i I just have a question um just to kind of uh keep it going was just how would how would you say um just the dynamics in egyptian politics from the arab spring to um, to now has kind of influenced your understanding or your interest or passion for politics and discourse? I've realized that you have to be able to talk to people. Um, oftentimes when you are not the ruling power, so right now, for example, in Egypt, um, when your beliefs are not the ones being held by the leadership and being implemented through policy, you have to be able to talk to them because ultimately they can just gun you down. Yeah. Like, you have to be prepared for that to be the reality. And so you're the Are you only... talking about that figuratively or, or literally? No, literally. Like they will yeah. just they will just ice you in the street if they decide. I mean, in the past, since 2013 onwards, I personally know four people who have been the the expression is black bagged. Like mm. they just disappear one day. And yeah. you know, yeah. we just all kind of don't talk about it, but we all know what happened, you know. Yeah. They yeah. were a little bit too open about their distaste publicly and like that. And so conversations have to be had. Like you, you have to be willing to sit across the table from people who you vehemently disagree with. Otherwise we stay mired in the dirt as we have been, you know, and granted, I will give CC 
a bit of credit, he has managed to implement some solid policies in the about nine years he's had. Yeah. Um, so, you know, there have been some pluses. Mm -hmm. um, they're trying to do a lot of good things with solar in the Sahara, given that that's just dead land. Yeah. So there's some good ideas, but ultimately a broken clock can be right twice a day. So I'm yeah. not going to give him that much credit. Mm -hmm. But I still think that there there needs to be the ability for people on both sides to sit down across from each other. But there's been a decline in that because people are further insulating themselves from the opposition mm -hmm. rather than exposing themselves to them. And so really radical ideas can fester and become significantly more dangerous and more detached from reality. Mm -hmm. And that just makes the whole conversation dead. Like, yeah. yeah, you know, you, you have people in Egypt who want, who in their minds think that the military deserve wholesale preferential treatment. Mm -hmm. That's impossible. The yeah. military make up a tiny sect of our population. You're mm -hmm. That that's but the detachment from reality allows you to think that oh well the only yeah. people we talk to are military and military adjacent families mm -hmm. they'll all agree for sure <laughs> yeah no no you know and it's 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 kind of a little feedback loop in a sense right exactly. um, and like I, I i it's kind of i don't really want to move on but um i just have kind of a question to you and and if it relates still to you know how you see egypt that's completely fine but mm -hmm. You know, as as you grew up and, and saw the Arab Spring and then Sisi coming into power and and what kind of drew you to going to Queens for political science? Well, I knew I needed to equip myself. Um, mm -hmm. You know, you you get one go around to to be mm -hmm. on the opposition of the government side. They're not just going to let you go about your life if you make it apparent that you're anti-government. Okay. So if you're going to go, if you're going to be anti-government, you have to do it reasonably and sensibly and be prepared for the worst case scenario that they will just imprison you for life at the end of this. Yeah. Um, and so I knew I had to get a good education. I needed to take, take the courses that I needed to take, take the steps that I needed to make sure that when I finally go back and begin working to bring Egypt to a slightly more moderate and more progressive point, mm -hmm. I'm as equipped as I can be because like yeah. I said, the, the one go around thing. So you're kind of saying just to, to clarify that, that you're, you're the biggest reason why you wanted to go into political science was to really help um, the political dynamic and, and, and go back to Egypt and, and help out your, your. Yeah. Country. Yeah. Ultimately yeah. my, my, my main goal is to go back. And like when people ask me like, you know, in a very grand sense, like what is your ultimate goal? The mm -hmm. ultimate goal is to raise the floor of the average Egyptian's life. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the floor right now is so low that, the, that many Egyptians have to choose between electricity, running water, and food on a month-to-month -month basis. Mm -hmm. That's unacceptable to me. Yeah. So I would like the floor to be raised where no choice has to be made. Those three needs are at least being met by two mm -hmm. for a 90% majority of, of Egyptians. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And, and to lay the groundwork for people to come after me to continue improving those lives. Like the, the, ceiling, the ceiling in Egypt is as high as anywhere else in the world. I went to high school with girls who went to Milan and Paris to go prom dress shopping. So, <laughs> so the, the ceiling is no problem. Yeah. It's, it's the floor and the floor only keeps getting lower. Mm -hmm. 
so something has to be done in my in my opinion and i'd like to be a part of that thing being done um and, yeah sir no go ahead go ahead i mean i'll go in a little bit of a, a different way but how would you say like because i know like you're working right now at a mosque am i am i right yes yes i am is that is that endeavor kind of something that you want to kind of you know, like it is a, a collective at, at a, you know, at a religious, you know, in this case, a mosque, is that something that kind of you were influenced by, by your politics or was it more happenstance? It was, it was a kind of a happy coincidence. Um, mm -hmm. Part of, part of what I think Egypt needs to address is it's uh, like latent morality tied to Islam. Yeah. And so I wanted to better expose myself to extremely devout muslims my 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 faith has definitely ebbed and flowed throughout my whole life mm -hmm. um so it's hard for me to ever consider myself to be a true devout muslim mm -hmm. um i'm trying now to to better educate myself and to be better about it but mm -hmm. you know really immersing myself in people who have chosen to make islam the central core of their life mm -hmm. is is something that i consider to be very important because when i go back to egypt those are people who i will have to sit across from and i want to better understand their point of view where they come from why they have the opinions that they do mm -hmm. and how to be able to find a compromise with them mm -hmm. on, on top of the fact that the specific mosque that i work for is is a hard working social services organization okay and that's mm -hmm. that was uh, a core principle of mine that like I'm, I'm here to provide social services for people, not make them Muslims. So mm -hmm. I will hand out food and blankets and essential resources to homeless people, but I will not hand them a Quran. If they ask for a Quran, I'll give it to them and I'll talk to them about it. But mm -hmm. first and foremost, I'm here to help them, not to convert them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And my, my superiors made it clear to me that that is how they function, that we do good for the sake of good and people will then just associate Muslims with doing good because they know that this is a mosque that does good. Therefore we should consider that maybe, you know, this is, this is just how they do it. Have you had, or have you, or how have your, your kind of discussions with people at the mosque over, you know, political discourse or politics has that, what's, what have those conversations been like and have they kind of changed your opinion or, Fascinating, but they have not changed my opinion. I would say that they validated my my original thoughts about mm -hmm. it, which is that it's going to be an uphill battle. Um, relig mm -hmm. Religious ideologies give give the holder of those ideologies a sense of moral high ground. Yeah. Um, and most often it's not necessarily misplaced, but it's difficult to have a genuine compromising discussion yeah. with someone who believes that they have the moral high ground because they don't want to cede the moral side of it. Mm -hmm. They think that they're compromising their own ethics at that point. Mm -hmm. um, but when you tell people like, hey, maybe homosexuals should be allowed to exist, it's like, oh, this is a controversial, this is a controversial point to you. They're a human being, sir. Um, but you know, I've had I've had discussions to that effect, and I kind of leave it as is because ultimately, like, I do still need to earn my livelihood, so I'm not gonna nuke nuke my career. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it's just been more of a prodding prodding the bear and seeing how they respond, kind of. What I think, and like, I, like maybe listeners don't know, but I am a political science major as well. I, I what I, I have a big question for you is 
Do you, did you find many parallels between working at the mosque and, and being with, you know, mostly devout, I'd imagine, Muslims and being in political science at Queens? Were, were there kind of that, was that political discourse, did it feel very similar? Did it feel very different that it was more challenging of ideas? Uh, I just wanted you to kind of expand on that maybe thought. Yeah, yes and no. Um, definitely yes in a big way, I would say. More more yes than no in that okay. there, there is there is the belief that, especially because Queens is a pretty left-leaning school in terms yeah. of the student population. Yeah. Um, and so many of these people, again, have the same belief that they come from the moral high ground. Um, but that's no, way to, that's no way to have a conversation with anybody. And um, the only difference I would say, though, is that I think it's you're more likely to find somebody at Queens willing to change their mind mm -hmm. than somebody at or coming from a religious ideological standpoint. Yeah. Uh, for, fortunately, the people at my mosque have been very open minded when we have conversations and I've seen them willing to adapt and, and adjust their mode of thinking a little bit to be a little bit more compassionate towards others. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, I think due to the fact that you're coming from what you believe to be the word of God, I mean, yeah. that is the highest authority that any that could exist. So in that in that in that vein, you know, how can you tell someone like, you know, I, I'm just reading like John Locke. But if you <laughs> tell me that God said this, well, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't yeah. think John Locke can argue against that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So. Um, but and, and do you want to kind of go into a little bit how you're how, how like how the the political discourse at Queens was for you? Did you find it invigorating? Did you find it helpful? Did you find it frustrating? Yeah, no, I mean, anybody who knows me and has asked me that question already knows how I goddamn feel about it, man. The people, people at Queens really illustrated to me the importance of discourse. Mm -hmm. they, they, they opened my eyes to the fact that like, oh, without discourse, you will become this stupid. And mm. I do not want to be this stupid. So do you, do you mean stupid in, in the sense of kind of group think in the sense that you it's know, regurgitation? Of, yeah, it's all pure regurgitation. Nobody has an original thought in their head unless they are the person pushing the ideology themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I the amount of conversations like and it's all the, the analogy that I loved uh, that a, a YouTuber I'm a big fan of used to describe it is there are two teams playing on two completely different basketball courts mm -hmm. and they're just scoring baskets and getting the crowd to cheer for them. And there's a brick wall separating both courts. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's the current state of discourse is occasionally someone will fling a pile of shit over the wall at the other side. <laughs> and that's about it. Like yeah. nobody, by the time someone has the confidence to engage with the other side, generally speaking from my experience at Queens, they are already so deeply entrenched in their in their viewpoints mm -hmm. that you need you know 10,000 hours with them to begin yeah. dismantling it like they're they're there's no convincing them otherwise and that's a this is why I took philosophy as my minor when I was mm -hmm. at Queens because part of it is it teaches you the 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 methods to actually discuss things you know, mm -hmm. politics gives you the material and to the, yeah, the, the content to discuss, but the meta element of a conversation is why I wanted to study philosophy for, for a while. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, the 
it's it's amazing how often people just engage in bad faith discussions because they enter the conversation knowing full well that they're not going to change their mind by any pieces of information presented to them. Mm -hmm. Like near my third and fourth year, which is when I really lost my patience, I I would that's how I would initiate discussions. I would say what piece of information, regardless of how realistic it is that I have this information, but just what piece of information do you need to change your mind, you know? Mm -hmm. And based on what they tell me, that dictated if I'm going to continue this discussion or if this is a moot point, this is this is arguing with a brick wall. Yeah, no, no, no. I mean, I don't want to get into too much, but I, I think that's um, I think that's the problem now with social media and um, that we're just getting more and more into to group thinking a, a, like a feedback loop. I, I just kind of wanted to touch upon a little bit your philosophy and the methods thing that you said. Did, did you like what kind of methods did you learn to kind of have a real discussion or debate? Um, and do you use that now when you're at the mosque or if it's just with your friends or at Queens, like what did you take any of that, um, into your, into your life and into your political discourse itself? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it was, it, it was just another tool I wanted to have on my belt basically. And mm -hmm. it was, it, it just taught me the, the best way to keep the conversation going. Like and, as long as, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, and what, and what, what did you do? Like what, what were the, the methods or things that you learned? So one of the key things is avoid absolutes, um, try and avoid complete absolutes. Uh, obviously, all of the different like bad faith elements of discussions that was taught to me through philosophy. So things like ad hominem attacks and, mm. and the difference between and, and what to look for between a good faith and a bad faith actor in a discussion. Um, those these are all tools that I took to try and help me keep the just the conversation going like, yeah, because so my father is a diplomat. And some a principle that he kind of pushed, not pushed on me, but just passed down to me unintentionally was his explanation of the importance of keeping people around the table. As mm -hmm. long as nobody has gotten up from the table, mm -hmm. there's th nothing is doomed yet. Okay. Um, yeah. So as long as you can keep people listening and keep them talking about their ideas, you can find the solution in there somewhere, you know? Mm -hmm. no no what yeah he, he i was gonna say he kind of described it like a like sand sifting you know what that is like where you get like a no. you, you get like a strainer but it's like a very fine strainer so only yeah. grains of sand can pass through it yeah yeah and then you just kind of scoop up the sand and just shake it and if you keep shaking it, eventually you'll find these little nuggets so you just got to keep the scooping and shaking process going yeah, yeah. until something can be found and it will be mm -hmm. and so like uh, i I guess just to move on for it, like in the future, like what, what do you think is, you know, you can take this from a, you know, 10,000 feet above the issue or, or kind of even just at a very granular level, but what do you think is the first step that you want to take or that you think society should take to, to really bring people together considering, you know, look, even in Ottawa now with the truckers mm -hmm. and the divide in, in Canada and, and around the world. And obviously in Egypt, as you've mentioned before, what kind of would you want to do or think yeah. should be done? I think first and first and, and like developing world are kind of different in the, in their approaches. I think the, the, the problem in Canada is, is a to is, and for why the division exists, I think is very different than why it exists in a developing country mm -hmm. for, Can for, for Canada. I would argue it's more of a lack of purpose among the general population. And so the first grand movement that exists, people latch onto it to give them that 
very strong sense of purpose and drive towards something that's greater than them. Yeah. Um, but I think part of it comes down to the need for people to belong to something and belonging to an ideology is very easy, especially because ideologies will aim to kind of validate your worldview. Yeah. Um, but I think people need to engross themselves into the beliefs of their opposition and, hmm. and take it easy on them. Like the ad hominem kills it all. Like once, once you start you, the attacking the character, you wanna, do you, would you mind just explaining yeah. what ad hominem? Yeah. Yeah. An ad hominem attack basically is you are overlooking another person's argument and you're attacking their character or their person in and of themselves. So you, mm-hmm. you know, you, instead of saying that Trump's policies are bad, you just, call him orange and say his hair looks bad well that that didn't get us anywhere yeah. all you did was diss him mm-hmm. and and if you think about it on a person to person level if all if if you are a conservative person like you hold conservative ideology ideological points why would you ever listen to a liberal who calls you a monster and evil and or stupid you know, yeah and and stupid and all these things why would you ever listen to what that person has to say you know, all they've done is attack your character. Well, screw them. Yeah. Um, I, I don't blame anyone on either side for feeling like the other side shouldn't be heard. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's from my interactions with people who are on the opposing side of, of issues to me, I found that, no, they're significantly more reasonable than you would expect because the average person is is just that, an average person. They, they fall yeah. closer to the middle than you would expect. And so having faith in that the other person would be willing to compromise and, and making it clear to the other person that that's what needs to happen. Like I found that I've gone into discussions mistakenly thinking that both of us are open to being convinced when in actuality, it's just me. And it ends up feeling like a timeshare presentation. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, reading, reading their material, you know, read their sources, read, their arguments why do they think this mm-hmm. um and yeah you might find you know what this is pretty damn evil but have faith that maybe some people don't hold the entirety of the view and yeah. if so if you approach it delicately and calmly enough you might be able to show somebody hey you not your entire viewpoint is bad but maybe you should take a more critical look at this aspect of your ideology mm-hmm. and and just exercising some patience. That's what philosophy taught me more than anything. Show some patience for all these things, you know? Like, mm-hmm. people people tie their political ideologies so deeply to their own person mm-hmm. that que- even, even questioning someone's ideology can end up making them feel like it's an, a personal ad hominem attack. Mm-hmm. Um, and so just being prepared for that. And ultimately, like, it's... It's kind of a dickish thing to say, but don't don't feel upset if you find yourself not being patient enough to 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 engage in these discussions yeah. with people. If you find yourself to be a very short-tempered person like me, um, take the time to exercise your patience first before putting yourself in these situations because ultimately you're only gonna do more harm than good. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you many people say it's not my responsibility to educate racists, you know. Well, to an extent, it has to be somebody's responsibility. Yeah. Um, they've clearly been led too far astray to ever self-educate again. 
Mm-hmm. So you're going to have to kind of step in there and be like, hey, maybe you should take a more critical look at this and take it gently, man. Like, I hate to be the one to be like, oh, be kind and gentle to the racists. But ultimately, <laughs> if you want to change their mind, you know, we're not going to be gulagging people like you. Yeah. yeah. No. So either, not. Yeah. Yeah. So either learn to coexist or take a very extreme and radical viewpoint that will never exist. I mean, there's, there's a degree of realism that has to happen here. Like coexistence has to happen. Yeah. So get to work educating. Mm-hmm. So I, I guess just going off that and, and, and kind of ending on, on, on that a little bit, what is kind of something that you find that like looking to now and, and into the future, that's a really important political issue or something about discourse that um, that you kind of think you'll follow or really care about uh, going forward? Uh, probably the the ever shifting burden on individuals is a big social issue that I'm going to continue Mm. to follow very closely. Mm. I think the point that I just made about individuals needing to engross themselves into the viewpoints of others, Mm -hmm. that's due to the fact that the tools that we have to research meet to research ideas are designed to insulate us because that's what keeps us on social media. That's what keeps us on news sites is feeding us the information that validates us. Um, and I think that's very unfair to place that burden on the individuals. You know, the average individual is not media trained and media savvy enough to, to, to sift through these things. So I think putting that burden on people so intensely is just very, very unfair and results in taking advantage of, of people, you know, you know, Facebook knows that the average user is not going to work double time to like and follow pages that disagree with them yeah and and they're not going to push those pages in the recommended they're just going to keep pushing more things that you agree with Mm -hmm. and so you know i would like to figure out the ways to shift that burden back on the producer not the consumer Mm -hmm. to to protect themselves you know the the average consumer has enough problems to deal with just surviving in this world is stressful enough Yeah. Um, yeah so i would say that that's something if to any listeners, you know, keep an eye on that as, as something to to that that you might start to notice that that the burden in everything around you, when it comes to your own privacy, the burden has now shifted onto you to stay to to maintain the level of privacy that you want, not that the technology is private by default. Yeah, and yeah. so in in everything, so that's that's something I think needs to be addressed before I think major changes will ever happen socially. Yeah. No, I, I completely agree. Like, I mean, this podcast isn't about my opinions, but I, I do think what you said is really important. And uh, I think we'll hopefully we're going in that future, although I think we're going to probably have some some divide uh, and it won't be smooth sailing. But I think everything you said is really uh, especially on that point about, you know, social media and, and all that. So thank you very much for being on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Uh, hearing from you and and your thoughts on political discourse and uh, and politics and this, and you know being raised in Egypt and all that kind of the dynamic there that you know I don't know that well so thank you very much for this Kamal. No, thank you for having me, man. This was this was a blast. It's always a nice time to to have a, an intelligent conversation with someone who who knows what they know. So well, it's, always, it's always nice. Thank you for having me, Alex. And so for the uh, rest of the Passion Project, I think we have another. Uh, new podcast coming out maybe sometime next week. So stay tuned for that. And uh, thank you very much for listening.